Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We have another very interesting guest today. Uh, she is a former U.S. Army intelligence officer. She worked on the HIPSI staff twice. Um, she was the DIA representative to both UCOM and NATO. She was the director of Intel Community Affairs at Booz Island. But most important for today, she was head of DHS's Intelligence and Analysis Department. Please welcome Karen Wagner. Karen, welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you very much for having me, Jim. Uh, I'm happy to be here. And when we first discussed uh, topics that I might present, I remember I, I wanted to talk about uh, congressional oversight and programming and budgeting because that's one of my uh, my passions. But then I decided that people would be more interested in hearing a little bit about my time at DHS INA. So that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. And um, I actually served at INA from early 2010, February 2010, till the end of 2012. So just under three years, which actually turned out to be the longest three years of my professional career. I'm going to share a little bit of, of my, uh, my my challenges with you. But first, I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit because it's sort of interesting about how I got the job, which is a little uh, you know, unusual. I don't have a background in Homeland Security or law enforcement or counterterrorism. So it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, I had uh, retired uh, from the Hill. Um, had I had been working as the... Um, Chief Financial Officer for the National Intelligence Program, hence my love of budgeting. Uh, and around uh, 2007, and I decided to go back to Capitol Hill, as Jim mentioned, I had worked up there, uh, to get my final two years so that I could uh, retire from the Hill because they can retire a little bit earlier, of course. And uh, then I uh, retired and I got, but at the time I became uh, an early supporter of uh, Barack Obama's. And I had reached out to John Brennan, who was uh, involved in his campaign at the time, to say, Any, if there's anything I can do, don't hesitate to call on me. So after I retired, uh, sort of out of the blue, I got a phone call from John Brennan uh, asking me if I wanted to be on the Obama-Biden transition team, which, of course, was a fantastic opportunity. So I said yes, worked with a bunch of, of great people. And at the end of that um, comes the, you know, the, the question, well, what job do you want in the administration? And, you know, I had been retired and I had been enjoying it. So I said to John Brennan, well, there's one job I would take, it, which is the uh, the deputy DNI uh, director of national intelligence for management position, which was the job that Pat Kennedy had had uh, when I when I worked for him under uh, John Negroponte, because it was responsible for budgeting and policy and requirements management and, you know, all the things that I really like to do. Well, as it turned out, um, the new DNI was not going to organize the DNI that way. So that position was not going to exist. So I just happily went back to being retired. And in the, at that point, uh, Phil Mudd, who a uh, man for whom I have great respect, had been nominated to be the Undersecretary for Intelligence and Analysis at, at uh, INA, along with Bart Johnson to be his deputy. They were they were sort of put forth as a tandem pair. Uh, Bart had been working on the ODNI staff, uh, working um, partner engagements with state and local law enforcement, and was a retired colonel from the New York State Police, a great guy. And of course, Phil was a career CIA person, but who had been working at the FBI head. So he was really ID, the undersecretary for INA. Well, as probably most of you know, um, 
Phil ran into into tough sledding because he had worked at the CIA during the time of enhanced interrogation techniques, and uh, he 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 worked hard to um, answer all the questions that were asked. But at some point, it became clear that this was this was a hurdle he wasn't going to get past, so he withdrew. And then I get another call uh, out of the blue from John Brennan. Uh, asking me if I wanted to be the undersecretary for intelligence and analysis at DHS. And I kind of figured he never said this, but my speculation was they they went, oh, dear, <laughs> who do we know that hasn't worked in the CIA that we can nominate for this job? <laughs> and that was probably not going to be a very long list. So I, I thought about it and uh, I thought, well, how can I say no to this opportunity? So I went ahead and did it. However, uh, soon after I was put forward, uh, I got put on hold by a senator. And, you know, the senators can do these anonymous holds. Uh, they don't have to say why. And it was I and 49 others, none of whom I knew, uh, just a list of 50 people. And no one could tell me why. So I thought, well, I worked on the Hill. I can do a little uh, intelligence work here. So I made some phone calls and it didn't actually take me that long to find out that it was Senator Shelby who had placed the hold. And the issue uh, was uh, about a, a refueling location for the KC-135 tanker. So I relayed this information to White House personnel and uh, so soon after was in the press. And once sort of a light was being shown on all of this, um, negotiations happened and the hold was lifted. So I did manage then to get my confirmation hearing scheduled. But in the meantime, I had been sitting at home uh, at my parents' house uh, over Christmas watching the underwear bomber saga unfold on TV. And, you know, they're looking at me and I'm <laughs> thinking to myself, what have I gotten myself into? So I go into my confirmation hearing prep uh, in, in sort of uh, January, right after the holidays. And it all of a sudden occurs to me, okay, I have not been involved in enhanced interrogation techniques, but I was in charge of analysis at DIA during the time of the Iraqi WMD debacle. And I'm probably going to get a lot of questions on that. So I spent many hours uh, preparing to be asked questions about rocket launcher tubes and mobile bio labs, only to have not a single question get asked at my confirmation hearing. And then I finally um, was ready to, to start the job. So um, in my confirmation hearing, I got asked, well, you know, INA has has it's a troubled organization. They don't seem to have found their way. What are you going to, you know, how do you understand their mission and what are you going to do uh, to, to improve the situation? And at the time I was thinking, well, you know, it doesn't seem all that different to me what I was doing at DIA. I had, I was uh, running an analysis for a large department uh, trying to serve the, the secretary and the, and the staff, uh, the OSD staff. I was also trying to focus support to the components of the department, the services in DOD, the components in DHS looked kind of similar to me, and also trying to push information out to forward deployed locations at the at the unified commands. And so at DHS, it was a little different. Your, your deployed locations were your state and local law enforcement partners and your your IOs that were out there. And of course, with DHS, there was the added wrinkle of engaging with the private sector, which was something I hadn't done. But this all looked like, you know, it, it, a known problem that, you know, that I could attack. So once I got into INA, um, I quickly learned that 
it's a lot, it was a lot more complicated than I thought. Um, most people think of INA as an analytic organization. Um, but I discovered when I went in there that it was a, it had more missions and more customer sets than any place I had ever worked by an order of magnitude. Not only did they do analysis, they were responsible for requirements management and running a large reporting program, intelligence information reporting from the, from within the department. Um, they did. They were responsible for counterintelligence for the entire department. They had a large training and education activity because they were responsible for uh, for training people both in in the components, but also uh, folks at the fusion centers that are out in the in the state. Uh, state areas and major urban uh, major, major urgent centers. So analysis was a part of the mission. It was far from uh, the majority of the people. There just really weren't that many analysts there, and they were spread out over a wide variety of analytic missions. So it was it was a challenging uh, uh, challenging perspective. But today, what we're going to do is focus on sort of three uh, key areas that most people knew that we did, and where there was some sort of uh, level of churn or controversy. And that was you know the all source analysis mission, specifically vis-a-vis counterterrorism, uh, the information sharing portfolio that DHS and INA uh, was given to ensure that as much actionable information as possible was shared with our state and local law enforcement partners, which was a lesson that we had learned um, from from 9-11 and also going back even further from Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing, you know, because as you all may remember, he was stopped for speeding by a cop uh, uh, around the time of, of that incident. So, um, there were significant challenges I discovered kind of in each area, so we'll just kind of walk through those. So the first thing to kind of keep in mind is DHS was created in 2002, and you know, TSA was created, was the first, the only new organization. Everything else was kind of repackaged into a department, and the department headquarters was popped on top of it. Not very well thought out and very under-resourced for a department of its size and complexity. So there was a lot of, there were a lot of people just trying to figure out where the bathroom was for a long time. So with DHS being created in 2002 and NCTC being created in 2004, uh, NCTC had a, had a big advantage in, in moving into this space. It was built on an already existing capable organization, the Terrorist Threat in, uh, Intelligence Center, the TTIC, that had been created by John Brennan. And it had, you know, all of the infrastructure and organization and management and money of the intelligence community behind it. So it hit the ground uh, running. All, DHS was literally still trying to find working bathrooms at the Nebraska Avenue complex in DC. So there was a significant overlap at the time of, of analytic responsibilities in CT. And by the time I came on board, you know, in the 2012 timeframe, so 10 years after DHS was formed, NCTC had already matured into a very capable uh, and dynamic organization. And INA, frankly, was still struggling to find its niche. Um, more than a third of its billets at that time were unfilled. And as I mentioned, there weren't that many analytic billets to start with. So there was no way that it could compete to use bureaucratic terms with NCTC. And it was really uh, struggling um, to find its niche. So we tried at that point to, to add value by focusing on our analytic efforts on data that the department 
um, owned and had collected in the course of its you know, legally authorized activities in collect in customs and border protection and, um, and ICE immigration and customs enforcement. Uh, they generated a lot of, of useful information, uh, the border and counter information that CBP had every day, and also all the travel data that CBP was collecting, uh, CBP and TSA to manage the, um, you know, the watch listing programs and the no fly lists. So we had a, a wealth of valuable data and we were trying to focus on that. But by the time um, I left INA, we had already, uh, we had succeeded in finalizing a bunch of information sharing agreements with NCTC. So they were now starting to get, uh, get all of that same data from us for them to add to all their other data and do analysis on that too. So it became, uh, even that became uh, sort of, sort of a challenge. And NCTC also, as they grew uh, and got more people and got better at what they were doing, started moving into the information sharing with state and local realm by creating dedicated products for state and local customers and placing them, you know, it was a pull system rather than a push system, but a lot of great stuff. So it's in, you know, for the, for the taxpayer and the mission, it was good. Uh, if you're sitting at INA, it was a little challenging, like, okay, so what do I do now? Well, now let's talk a little bit about um, the FBI, another whole nother uh, challenging issue. Again, DHS created in 2002. The FBI created in 1908. The FBI had a long, long culture and tradition, uh, uh, very strong law enforcement culture. Um, even though the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004, fondly known as the IRTPA, had also made them a domestic intelligence as well as a federal law enforcement agency. They were wrestling with how to do that uh, and the law enforcement mission at the same time, the two cultures resided uneasily together. Uh, it's kind of an understatement. But the bottom line is um, when DHS was created, the statute is long and detailed about what we were going to do, including how the headquarters was going to be organized and a lot of information that really shouldn't have been in the statute. Because now every time DHS wants to change its organizational structure, it needs a law to do that, which is crazy. But the D, uh, since FBI has been around forever, it doesn't have a long, detailed statute. It Basically, its legal foundation is, you know, go catch bad guys. Here are the special federal crimes you're responsible for, go catch bad guys. So our mandate to share information with our state and local law enforcement partners um, kind of overlapped with existing relationships that the FBI had had, had and needs to have in order uh, to do its job. And the FBI never really liked DHS. Um, fair to say, I think. And also, at least at the time I was there, didn't understand a lot of DHS's uh, statutory missions, particularly what CBP and ICE were doing. There was a, quite a bit of friction when the law enforcement elements bumped up against each other. Um, and we were we spent a lot of time uh, when I was at INA trying to establish lanes in the road with the FBI on our analytic lanes, our information sharing lanes, and also uh, trying to, to, to fight the battle of the fusion centers versus the joint terrorism task forces. The FBI, for reasons I really still don't completely understand, um, seemed to feel threatened by the concept of the fusion centers. that were They were created in the wake of 9-11 as part of this information sharing environment to try to make sure that not only did 
the feds share as much information as possible with our state and local partners about you know, actionable uh, CT-related intelligence, but that we had a way to get from them information that was potentially terrorism-related and useful. And I think, you know, as most of you probably know, just from reading the press, we have almost 18,000 distinct law enforcement entities in this country. Everything from metropolitan police departments to the local sheriff's departments to state police to park, you name it. It's particularly bad in D.C., as we've seen uh, recently. But um, we needed ways for those uh, those cops on the beat or people whomever who uncovered something that that appeared to be terrorism related to send that up the chain. So we recreated this national network and the fusion centers are the are the key nodes in that network. There's at least one in every state except for Wyoming. Uh, and in some cases, depending on the size of the state and their uh, the way they wanted to organize themselves, there's more than one. The fusion centers are under state control. So some of them are run by by law enforcement, some by emergency management. They're kind of all threats, all hazards. But their job was to be basically um, information clearinghouse, going up and going down. And um, so they were very distinct from the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, which are run by the FBI and have a very operational uh, law enforcement mission. Uh, Find, deter, disrupt, capture, prosecute, terrorists. And the JTTFs have representatives in them from local law enforcement and other components of DHS and other federal and state entities that all have a stake in the game. They're geographically. They just really didn't have that much in common. Different missions, different chains of command, but the FBI really, really um, didn't like them. And because at that time, uh, the chairman of the House Intelligence uh, Committee was a former FBI special agent, I found that the HIPSI, uh, the House Intelligence Committee, particularly not friendly to the Fusion Center idea. So we had a lot of back and forth. So at one point, this is just an anecdote I like to tell that kind of illustrates uh, the relationship that we had. Mike Leiter, who was the head of NCTC at that time, hosted a meeting with me and Mark Giuliano, and we were going to try to, to talk about, was there a way to deconflict our information sharing activities? My concern being that the feds looked like a bunch of chumps because we weren't talking to each other and we didn't know what each other had told state and local. And we didn't get very far and at one point, I found myself quoting the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act and, and our founding statute about what our responsibilities were. And Mike Leiter kind of looked at me and said, Karen, in Washington, when you, when you have to fall back on quoting the statute, you've lost the argument. <laughs> and suffice it to say that I did, uh, didn't make much headway there. We did make headway in a few other areas. We did establish the, um, the Joint Intelligence Bulletin process, which actually worked pretty well to have to, to have DHS and FBI providing um, a unified integrated threat assessment to our state and local partners. And now I think over time, NCTC has now joined that that merry band. So this is this is the best assessment that the that the feds can give to you, the state and local, which is a good thing. And we and we hammered out a lot, a lot of things to get there. So it wasn't all bad, but it was definitely challenging. So um, so those two key relationships with FBI and NCTC were kind of fraught and, and, and the boundaries were very blurry. 
And I discovered another really interesting wrinkle when I started at, I, at INA, which is that as a member of the intelligence community, I was funded in the National Intelligence Program, which meant that my dollars were being authorized and appropriated under Title 50 of the U.S. Code for National Security, like same type of money that CIA and NSA and the other FI people, foreign intelligence people got. But my charter for supporting the uh, the department and my attorney general guidelines, which laid out my legal parameters for what I could legally do to fulfill the mission that I had from the department, uh, said that I was supposed to do uh, analysis on all terrorist threats, including domestic threats. Um, and I also had the ability to acquire, analyze, and retain U.S. persons information in the course of doing that, which foreign intelligence people um, uh, really can't, can't do with, with exceptions. So the problem was that the ODNI did not, did not want anybody using Title 50 dollars to do domestic terrorism analysis. So the FBI had sort of carved out a little piece of their um, national security branch for domestic. Um, but I didn't really have the opportunity to do that because the only dollars I had were NIP dollars. So we had actually published uh, domestic terrorism uh, analyses using Title 50 dollars in the past. And I was I just wanted to kind of put this right. And I wasn't making much progress. So. Um, what I decided to do was try to carve out a piece of my budget that was not a national intelligence program fund. And the DNI cooperated with me to allow me to carve out a certain amount of money that was NIP into a different pot. And that allowed me to go um, up to Congress also to the appropriators and say, why don't you add some money if you would like to uh, and put it over here? And that way it doesn't have to be authorized by the intelligence committees who were, shall I say, not very friendly to a few things I wanted to do. So I actually succeeded uh, in creating a Homeland Security Intelligence Program, uh, a small amount of funding in my program that was not uh, that was not NIP Title 50 dollars. And uh, the problem was when I got money added to that from Congress to do some of the things I wanted to do, the department <laughs> took it <laughs> because NIP dollars are uh, basically belong to the DNI and the, and the, the, the department comptrollers aren't allowed to touch them without his permission or approval. But my, my new pot that I had created was not subject to that uh, fence. So that money all got raided. Um, the bottom line though, is that I, I just, dis I discovered an interesting dilemma. NCTC, when it was chartered, uh, was authorized as a foreign intelligence element. So it is supposed to do international terrorism, terrorism that has an overseas foreign nexus, not domestic terrorism. And here I was at DHS INA, supposedly looking at all types of terrorism, but not funded in a way that I could legally do the domestic terrorism piece, even though we were just kind of doing it anyway, sort of. I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, so the only person who's really focusing on the domestic terrorism problem at this point is FBI, and they are doing some analysis on this topic, but they're not sharing it very widely because they don't have an information sharing mandate uh, or really an information sharing culture. So that was a bit of a dilemma. But the irony was that as I was having this argument with ODNI about whether or not I could do DT analysis 
using NIP dollars, we weren't really doing much DT analysis because we had in 2009 published uh, a paper uh, which is euphemistically known as the right-wing extremism paper, right-wing extremism, current economic and political climate fueling resurgence in radicalization and recruitment. And you can find that product online. It actually stands the test of time very well because every product that we ever released, even though that it was FOUO, would leak within seconds in its entirety. And you always had to be cognizant of that as you wrote the product and you had to choose your words carefully while not compromising your your uh, intel the integrity of your intelligence. Not We didn't probably do that to the extent we could have with this product, but Really what they didn't do, and this it was put out right before I started, we didn't prepare, uh, the office did not prepare the secretary and the headquarters for the potential blowback from this product. And it was, uh, it was immediate and extreme. So it turned out that my analysts uh, who had been involved in this product were savaged. Uh, several of them were, were uh, told never to return to Capitol Hill again to give a briefing. It was it was really a, a, a pretty bad experience, and I didn't realize for quite some time when I got to INA that that the analysts weren't going to write domestic terrorism analysis. The ones that were there who remembered this had deep deep scars, and they were avoiding it like the plague. So even as I was sort of fighting to have the legal ability to do it, the organization really wasn't doing it. And that was unfortunate because it was a time uh, when there was a lot of this activity going on. And I remember talking to our state and local partners um, and they would, first of all, they would say, why aren't you giving me more CT related intelligence? And the sad truth was there just really wasn't that much to give them that related to the international, you know, Al-Qaeda inspired threat. And then they would say in the next breath, but what I'm really worried about is not Al-Qaeda, uh, it's sovereign citizens. And we kind of let an analytic vacuum uh, sort of um, uh, fester there, I think, because people were gun shy. Uh, and part of it is because we just hadn't really sorted out who does what to who and the, and the best way um, to do this. So I still, I feel that um, the director of national intelligence's responsibility and the intelligence community's responsibility for intelligence in the homeland is still not clear. It's a bit of unfinished business from the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act. And, um, you know, the DNI took some steps to try to move into that space when the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act said that it's not the NFIP anymore, the National Foreign Intelligence Program, it's the NIP, the National Intelligence Program. And the DNI is responsible for, for analyzing all threats, uh, foreign, homeland, domestic. And we never really sat down to think about what does that mean? And the DNI created um, some DNI representatives uh, in the homeland, which was a good first step. He has representatives overseas in the embassies. He has representatives in the unified commands. So they created uh, representatives in the homeland. They were uh, 12 senior um, senior agents in charge, FBI uh, SACs at, uh, at 12 major cities. So we have a, a geographic uh, distribution of these folks. So that was a good thing, but we've never actually figured out what we want them to do. And there's been a reluctance, I think, to put 
much in writing about what they should be doing because we still we still have a very foreign intelligence focused intelligence community and it makes a lot of the lawyers extremely uncomfortable to talk about doing intelligence in the homeland although clearly we do intelligence in the homeland the fbi a member of the intelligence community does um foreign intelligence collection in the homeland under Title 50 against U.S. persons, and it's all perfectly legal. And DHS also has the ability and the charter to do uh, analysis of, of U.S. persons, if appropriate, and within our mission space. But how do you manage that? And how do you do a better job of communicating out to your partners in the homeland? These are the things we're interested in right now. If you have any information on this that would help us, um, send it up the chain. We're not tasking you. We're just asking. We're just sharing. Um, and we have just not been able to harness that. Um, one other positive step that was taken, which I kind of take credit for, is I was frustrated that on the ODNI staff, every major and topic of intelligence that we really cared about had a national intelligence manager, someone in charge for uh, in charge of overseeing collection and analysis and requirements and advocating for new capabilities and and just and pulling pulling all of the pieces of the intelligence community together against a given intelligence region or topic. And there was not no one owned the homeland. It was just like no man's land. And because of all these legal concerns about the appearance of doing intelligence collection in the homeland, it also was not in our national intelligence priorities framework anywhere. So how do you assess whether you're doing the best kinds of intelligence you should be in the homeland if no, you don't have a belly button uh, to ask that question and try to and try to figure out what the answer is? So I was pushing for there to be a NIM. National Intelligence Manager for the Homeland. And everybody really hated that idea. So I, at one point, finally gave uh, a briefing to General Clapper and the entire XCOM with all the NIMS and the program managers. And um, I walked through a really interesting case study of something that CBP and ICE had done using unclassified information that they had gained through law enforcement and public sources to put together a really interesting picture of a money laundering operation that was global in nature and ended up being tracked back to uh, Hezbollah. It was fascinating. And so my, my argument to the, to the intelligence guys was, don't you think that there's some value here if we can come up with a better way of, of working together in a legal and appropriate way. Uh, and, and, oh, by the way, don't you think that it could flow, this, you know, they can help you and you can help them. Well, General Clapper actually, uh, I give him credit because I think almost everyone on his staff was telling him not to do it, but he did in fact create a pilot program. And while there is not a NIM for the homeland per se, there is a NIM who is responsible for the homeland. And that is um, the NIM for, gosh, transnational crime, the homeland and Western hemisphere. So it's part of a big grab bag, but at least there's a belly button uh, to push. So the bottom line is there has been some improvement, but I think more clearly needs to happen. Um, INA continues, I think, to struggle with it's clear that the Department of Homeland Security deserves to have its own intelligence element. And 
So that kind of makes sense. But what does what is INA's role vis-a-vis the larger intelligence community in terms of what kind of niche does it have? And I think that's still kind of an open question. They are active participants in the CT mission with NCTC, and I think that's probably great. And the fact that we pool all of our resources within NCTC, DHS, FBI, CIA, and everybody probably produces the best product. Recently, INA has taken sort of a tack towards trying to do more intelligence focused on component missions, and that's probably a good way to go, and also more intelligence focused on supporting DHS's cyber and infrastructure protection missions. It's always been a tough a tough one because that's the one job nobody wants, critical infrastructure protection. But there's not a lot of intelligence on that. There's some, but not a lot. A lot of it is about risk and vulnerability and how do you pull those things together. But anyway, INA is, I think, turned internally a little bit, and that's not necessarily a bad idea. The bigger issues of um, who's going to do domestic terrorism analysis, who should do it, does the FBI need more legal authorities in this arena, which I think they do, and other things, we need to have that conversation. And it's pretty clear that that conversation is starting in the wake of uh, the events of January 6th, and the Biden administration is going to take good, hard look at this. So I think we're going to see some changes uh, some changes coming up. But I just thought that uh, some of my, my early experiences and challenges might be uh, interesting in light of uh, what everybody's you know, reading in the paper now. And I'll stop there, Jim, and let you ask me any questions that you might have. Karen, uh, fascinating insights into a rather complex, but also terribly important topic. You touched very briefly on the uh, collection activities of CBP and ICE, but could you elaborate a little bit more on the overall intelligence capabilities of uh, DHS INA? Um, I, actually, I'll talk about the intelligence capabilities of the department writ large, uh, because I said DHS INA had mostly, uh, but not so much on collecting. What we had a bunch of uh, intelligence officers that were forward deployed out to the fusion centers, and the word we used to use out there was gather. <laughs> we didn't want to make it sound like we were out there collecting against U.S. persons, which we weren't. What we were trying to do was uh, get information that local law enforcement had already gleaned through its its legal exercise of its authorities that um, that was pertinent to a topic we cared about that could be reported back and shared. But the more important uh, piece is the intelligence capabilities of the department writ large. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand the size and sophistication of the intelligence elements of the components of DHS, particularly Customs and Border Protection. Um, they actually can do some really amazing things. And not only do they have a, a huge, what I would call, big data analytics effort that was was so world-class that when I was at INA, I took uh, General Clapper and a bunch of his staff out there to see it, the National Targeting Center, and they were pretty blown away at what they could do. And if you think about the volumes of information that they have to um, that they have to sift through and, and analyze in in almost real time of people getting ready to travel to the US, um, it's pretty impressive. And they also have a must have 
uh, their own sort of organic intelligence capabilities to prosecute their missions along the border. So they do a lot of uh, law enforcement technical collection, let's see, um, which is what the law enforcement guys, you know, basically call SIGIN. And they have a they have an air and marine operation that flies fixed wing and uh, unmanned vehicles and does um, sort of geospatial collection and analysis at a site in California. That you know it's pretty impressive. And um, Intel uh, ICE Immigration and Customs Enforcement has a very uh, a, a large intelligence element as well, focused on on. On immigration's enforcement, but also on on other missions for which it it plays an important lead role, like human trafficking. They basically run the uh, the human trafficking center, uh, and they put out some really really good information. So, and of course, the Coast Guard, which is an independent element of the intelligence community, uh, has a, a very sophisticated intelligence apparatus that runs the gamut. It's like all the other services, just just smaller. And I would I would submit better. I love the Coast Guard, but but so there's a lot of intelligence um, going on at DHS and the Congress at certain points in the past has said, well, why don't you have um, a military intelligence program like Construct in DHS? Because for those of you who are familiar at all with the with the budgets, um, the NIP is the national program that the DNI manages. The MIP, the military intelligence program, is the aggregation of all the defense intelligence capabilities that are, you know, at the tactical operational level under the control of the SECDEF and the USDI sort of oversees that. But it's a way to pull those pieces together and make sure that they that they operate together when they need to in the joint environment, but also make sure that they plug seamlessly into the national environment. So the USDI and the DNI work very hard to keep the NIP and the MIP um, mutually reinforcing. And it it seems to make a lot of sense to apply that model to DHS at some point in the future. They would certainly benefit from some integration of of their, even within Customs and Border Protection, the sectors themselves weren't even integrated in terms of of having their equipment uh, tip and cue each other when somebody moved from one sector to another. So there was a lot of room, um, room for improvement there. And a lot of people thought that creating a MIP-like structure in Homeland Security to manage that and having the uh, the undersecretary of INA, who is, is the department's chief intelligence officer, sort of have a benign oversight role similar to that of USDI. I think that makes a lot of sense. But there's a lot of capability um, in the department that people are not aware of, uh, extending up up to you know airborne reconnaissance and um, and and a lot of very sophisticated uh, big data analytics uh, happening in CBP. Karen, uh, as you well know, the Department of Homeland Security is now almost 20 years old. Has it stood the test of time or does it still need some further modification? Well, one thing that is harder than just about anything else in Washington is 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 uncreating anything that's been created. Things just tend not to go away. And I, I know a lot of people, I think, were hoping that DHS was going to go away, that it was a that it was a reaction to a specific point in time and that it would, you know, eventually kind of, I don't know, fall under its own weight or people would think better of it. It's pretty clearly not going away. I honestly think that it it shouldn't go away. I think that there 
was actual real value in the idea of packaging together these these activities whose main purpose was not CT, but who in the course of doing their main purpose generated a lot of information or touched a lot of things that had a relationship to CT so that if you had uh, a headquarters element to try to pull all that together, um, you could come up with sort of a defense in depth, which was what we needed. I think that made a lot of sense. Whether all the things that got put into DHS really needed to be in DHS you know, reasonable people can disagree on that. Um, I tend to think FEMA doesn't need to be in DHS. From a CT perspective, there's not that tight of a of a linkage, uh, and it's it's a it's a huge, complicated, and sometimes politically controversial uh, component that takes a lot of time and attention from the secretary. And I can remember, you know, being in a more in morning briefings with her when we had a you know important terrorism relate uh, information to convey uh and she's and a lot of her time was spent spent talking about wildfires in california and hurricane response so i'm not sure that 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 actually adds adds to any synergy by having it in there and i don't know that the secret service needs to be there either although the secret service candidly I used to say they weren't much of a distraction because they just stayed to themselves and did their own thing. But then they became a distraction when they started having, a, you know, sort of a, a wave of, of political scandals. So I'm not sure about that. But I think that um, the one thing that is still kind of holding DHS back from achieving you know, the, the purpose for which it, it was conceived is the headquarters is still not very functional. It's made there were some improvements. I think Jay Johnson improved some things, um, trying to, to make it a more um, regularly functioning kind of headquarters and, and to staff it sufficiently and with people of sufficient expertise to be able to actually um, manage the components because you know what, when I was at DHS, the components called the headquarters DHS. That's DHS. We are not DHS. We are CBP. We are TSA. We are ICE. And at some point, we for uh, we've got to get beyond that, where the department has enough clout with the components to actually orchestrate their activities. Right now, it's a little bit of shame, a little bit of persuasion, and that's kind of it. And part of this problem goes back to the fact that. Um, congressional oversight of DHS remains so fractured that some of the components are authorized and appropriated by different committees than the ones looking at the headquarters. So they're going to get their money. They're going to get what they need. They don't, there's no real incentive uh, for them to, to listen to these little, you know, whiny people up at headquarters. So I, I think that the idea behind DHS uh, has stood the test of time. I think it's still growing into its potential, um, you know, bearing in mind that uh, Goldwater Nichols in 1986 came along uh, 50 years after the, the Defense Department was created. And, and sometimes it takes a while for these large bureaucratic entities to uh, to 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 mature. So I would say yes and no. It's probably not a bad idea to, to relook whether all the things that are in the department need to be in the department. And then definitely we need uh, uh, the next secretary. And if it's going to be Ali Mayorkas, I mean, uh, I don't he has not yet been confirmed you know, to to focus on on building the institution and strengthening the headquarters 
uh, in order to be able to do what it needs to do. Karen, how is the U.S. Uh, doing against counterterrorism today? Have we succeeded in addressing uh, most or all of the issues raised in the 9-11 Commission report? I, th- you know, I think that we have done a a pretty decent job. Uh, I organization. I think they do uh, a really good job. And with the uh, with the assistance and active participation of the other CT stakeholders, you know, you know, FBI, DHS, CIA, DIA, uh, NSA, they um, they really do an excellent job. We we had to wrestle down a lot of interesting um, data and information sharing issues at the beginning. And I think most of that is has is going pretty well. Um, the Information sharing issues, particularly between um, you know law enforcement, FBI, and CIA, I think have have improved dramatically. Um, the over the congressional oversight piece is still very broken. That was a recommendation of the nine eleven commission that never got uh, addressed. I think um, the unity of command issue uh, about responding to you know how we how we integrate. Uh, the response to an incident when it crosses the boundaries of of some of these eighteen thousand uh, law enforcement organizations. I think we still struggle with that, and that that's something that's a big issue for us uh, here in in Washington as well. Um, I know that um, as we've sort of as a nation started to pivot a little bit back to focusing more on potential peer competitors uh, and and sort of less on CT, there have been a lot of voices like Russ Travers saying, you know, let's not um, let's not take our eye too much off this ball because uh, we we've got a we've we've done a lot of good things and we've got a lot of great things in place but complacency is not a, is not a good idea and we need to be able to uh to continue to maintain this this sort of level of of awareness and professionalism even as we uh try to to uh focus the, our intelligence resources against some uh new and emerging problems so you know overall i think i think we responded um pretty well there's there's always room for improvement, but the real danger is that at some point we um, we decide that this threat is over, and the the terrorists they're they're clearly still there, and they play the long game, and so it's an internal vigilance type of situation. Well, I want to thank uh, Karen Wagner for a, a very professional and thorough treatment of a complex but also terribly um, important topic. Karen, thank you very much for appearing on AFIO Now. Thanks for having me, Jim. Really had fun.